Welcome back to another podcast where we are in the book of Jonah, and we are in chapter 4, verse 4, which is where we left off before. A little humor for you there. Very, very little humor. Okay, so let's talk about verse 4. You know, the Lord answers Jonah by asking a question, and this is so much like our Lord to answer questions by asking yet another question. And here's the question. Is it right for you to be angry? You can think of it as though God was asking Jonah to justify his anger. God is condemning Jonah's wrath. He is saying, look, I'm God and I will have mercy on who I will have mercy and you have nothing to say about it. And this must not be taken lightly. You know, Jonah was daring to contend with God. This is not a playful conversation that's happening here. If you want to know the truth, it's madness. It's craziness to think that you are going to argue with God. How angry do you have to become that you actually think that it's better for God to kill you? knowing full well in your mind that God's got the power to do it. The fact that Jonah has disobeyed previously, he's been swallowed by a great fish, he was held there for three days, then he was vomited out on the shore, that would cause you to think, or at least it would cause me to think, that Jonah would be cautious about what he says to God from this point forward. He would be cautious about being rebellious against God. But this is exactly what we see happening here. He's being rebellious. And make no mistake about it, Jonah is in rebellion at the end of the story. He's in rebellion again. How dare you or I, or Jonah for that matter, or anyone else, question God on his judgment? God is making it very clear that he alone has the supreme right of judging and he has the supreme right to pour out mercy or grace on whoever he so chooses. So, if God does everything good, then all his judgments are good. Think about that. If God does everything good, then all of his judgments are good. And why are they good? Well, before you answer that, let's look at some scriptures, okay? And I made reference to this earlier in one of the earlier podcasts. And since it is my intention to go through the entire Bible verse by verse, there's going to be a lot of cross-referencing. One of the advantages of going through the Bible verse by verse is you start to see how that it is like a very, um, I guess you could say it's, foundational. One precept builds upon the next precept. One block in a building building upon the other block, all upon a sure foundation. And so what you find as you begin to study scripture is you'll be reading along somewhere and you'll go, oh, this reminds me of something I read over here in this book, in this chapter. And you'll see that as things begin to cross-reference, it begins to lend credibility to the overall 
theme of the Bible on the whole. There is a common thread throughout. As one concept builds upon the next concept, one precept built upon the next precept, these things, for lack of a better way to say it, they back each other up. It adds, as I said, it adds credibility. And there is a um, consistency throughout. So, all that being said, that's why you hear me making scripture references to other places, cross-referencing what we see here. So let's read Romans chapter 9, verses 15 through 18. And this is the word of the Lord. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion And even though that's in Romans chapter 9, verses 15, uh, that's just verse 15, that is a direct quote from Exodus 33, 19. So let's read on there in Romans, verse, uh, continuing on, Romans 9, uh, verse 16. He says, So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Verse 18, Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. This is deep stuff. And you're probably thinking, what's this got to do with Jonah? Well, it has everything to do with Jonah because Jonah here is daring to question God on his handling of the Ninevites. And so here in Romans, you've got uh, Paul um, quoting from Exodus, actually two different quotes from Exodus. And he's doing that to illustrate The bottom line is here, Paul's making a case. He says, therefore, he, that's God, has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. If you go back to verse 15, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, I'll just share a little bit with you here. Romans 9, 15, these are indicative verbs. Whenever it says, I will have mercy um, in... um, In Greek, it's a future, active, indicative, first-person singular verb. And then it's followed with, um, it says, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. That other phrase, the second time around, it's a verb, present, active, subjunctive. um, And that's also in first-person singular. So what's the big deal? Why do, why do these verb tenses matter? Um, I'm not just saying this so that you'll be impressed with my massive knowledge of Greek, because believe me, I am no Greek scholar. I've studied it a little bit, um, but I am by no means um, the best guy for Greek. But this is what I do know about what this is communicating to us here. Verse 15, they're indicative verbs And what this means, it is something that God has and not necessarily something that he 
does. That's what the indicative means. So when in the beginning there where it says, I will have mercy, this is something that God has. In other words, God has mercy. And then next it says, on whomever I will have mercy. And that part is subjunctive. So what it's saying is God is the one who has mercy. And therefore, since he is the one who has it, I'll put it to you this way. It is up to him to give it wherever he chooses to give it to glorify himself. You and I are in no position to demand from God that he gives mercy to us. Mercy cannot be demanded from God. And that's what I want you to get out of this. Mercy is something that God has. Mercy is something that God um, will give to whoever he wants to give. And you and I are in no position to demand. We are in no position to say it is not fair, God. You should have destroyed the Ninevites. How dare you have mercy on them? See, you and I are not in that position. We can't say that. And Jonah couldn't say that either. So let's read on. Let's look at Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who sent out, who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, why have you been standing idle all day? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard. And whatever is right, you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers in and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those who were hired about the eleventh hour, they received each a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. And when they received it, they complained against the landowner saying, these last men worked only one hour and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same to you. It is, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first and the first last. Listen to this. For many are called, but few are chosen. So, that's a mouthful. That's a lot. That's a lot to digest. That's a lot to think about. 
But the point of this is that the landowner made a deal with each different group of laborers. It's his money. It's his vineyard. And he decides what he's going to pay. And clearly what's going on here is this is a picture of God, the landowner, or really in this case, Jesus, the ultimate judge of the universe. And um, he is giving out the same reward to those who came in at the 11th hour that he gave to those who came in first thing in the morning. And of course, the point here is it's my stuff, it's my money, it's my vineyard. I can do whatever I want. Something to think about as we look back at Jonah and we look back at what's going on here in chapter 4 here of this discussion, really, this prayer time and this going back and forth between Jonah and God. Because, see, Jonah's coming against God just like these people that went out to the vineyard saying, wait a minute now. You've made them equal with me. Hmm. Powerful. Really think about it. So let's move on to verse 5. Because there's even more. And this is exciting. So how long did God give Nineveh to repent? Well, I believe the answer is 40 days. And, of course, the reason I believe that is because that was part of the message that Jonah preached. He preached 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. That was his main takeaway. <laughs> I have takeaways that I like to give you. Jonah's takeaway was repent or die. So here's another question. Was Jonah sitting outside the city before or after the 40 days were up? Well, here's an answer. The Bible doesn't say at what point that Jonah was sitting outside the city. I believe that the 40 days had passed. This is another one of James' opinions. I believe the 40 days had passed. The reason I believe it is because a straightforward reading of the text implies that he preached for at least a period of three days because the city itself was a three-day journey. And on the first day, he walked in the gate and it's a three days journey, and I'm going to assume that he did it by foot and he walked through. And of course, you got a plan for rests and things like that. But it would take time for the king's declaration to be heard throughout the whole kingdom because, um, you know, they didn't have uh, computers and cell phones and video and a printing press and the internet and you, the YouTube and all of that stuff. Uh, they didn't have text messaging and. Uh, fake book, I mean Facebook and all of those things. So, and we don't know how much time had passed before Jonah's message made it all the way up to, up to the king. You know, he's going through probably on a straight shot through three day journey, going to walk straight through, going to preach my message. And so eventually word gets around and we don't know how long it, it took to get to the king. Chapter 3, verse 10, indicates that God saw their good works. And remember, uh, I even brought that up before as what appears to be a contradiction. Like, you know, we're always talking about free grace and 
free uh, uh, salvation, but yet here it says God saw their good works. Well, we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Um, those good works, though, my point is this, would have to have started um, at some point between day one and day three. Remember, because assuming that Jonah preached the whole message, um, the whole three days, you know, the folks hearing it at day three, um, they just heard it. So they need some time to take part in the fast and the humbling of themselves before God that the king had called for. So I believe that the good works that um, it says that God evaluated their good works, that he saw their good works, um, it would have taken 40 days for all that to have passed. Um, it would have taken some time uh, for the king to make the decree, for the messengers to be sent out, for it to be implemented, and everything that went along with it. It also seems likely that since part of the message was about a 40-day timeline, uh, that Jonah would have waited to see. So um, apparently uh, Jonah doesn't really seem to care if he dies or not. Um, staying in the city while it was destroyed uh, probably would have been just fine with Jonah. Um, so apparently he is close enough that he can sit just outside the city. Maybe he climbed up on a hill or a mountain or something where he could look down over the city no doubt he was counting the days, realizing that we're coming up on day 40. Uh, perhaps he just uh, decided to sit and see what God was going to do. So let's look at verses 6 through 8. Notice the work of God in these verses. Um, God is in control of all nature. He causes a plant to grow extraordinarily fast. He brings in a plant, and it's up and dead in the day. Basically, one night it's up, next night it's dead. Notice that God prepared a worm, which was able to eat the plant, or at least do enough root damage and enough leaf damage to it, that he killed it in a single morning. Again, that's incredibly fast. And God caused an increased heat and a strong wind that must have been so hot and so intense that it made Jonah um, faint. So notice that Jonah was grateful for the plant in the shade. We see that Jonah is just like us. He's susceptible to incredible mood swings from extreme anger to a thankful heart, from rebellion to humbleness, from joy to grief. Do you see those extremes there in those verses? Why do you think that these extremes are included in the story? We see a tender side to Jonah and we see how easily he was influenced. We also learn what can happen if we allow ourselves to be swept away by emotions and feelings. It's also important that we see that God never left Jonah, no matter what the emotions were. Verse 9 is a repeat in reverse order from verses 3 and 4. Notice that God shows mercy and grace to his own here. Notice that God does not wait for Jonah to come to his senses. God shows himself to Jonah, who is so miserable and 
so angry and so overly dramatic that he's desiring death yet again. His anger and his displeasure, remember we talked about that displeasure, it seems to have no limit. He really ought to be shamed in the presence of God. He's hearing God's voice, but instead he's so obstinate um, that he is actually, in my opinion, he's almost near, and again, this is James' opinion, but he's near insanity. He's near madness. He's so angry about all of this. And then in verse 10 and 11, we see that God has the last word. Now, if you're keeping track in your parallel outline in verse 5, we started the final period at the end of the sentence. This is the end of the parallel um, outline. This is the, like I said before, this is the final point. God has the last word. And it's beautiful to me because what's God's last word here? It's a word of mercy. God chose to glorify himself by showing mercy to the Ninevites. God explains the plant and the worm to Jonah. See, God raised up the plant. God destroyed the plant. And through this, he's teaching Jonah that creation is God's. And therefore, God can do what he chooses with his creation, just like the landowner in the parable that Jesus told in the reference we just read earlier. Further, he shows that Jonah's conduct toward the Ninevites was inhumane. Jonah wasn't happy that the plant died, but only because that the plant provided shade for Jonah. Jonah's response is very self-centered. He cared more for a plant than he did for the population of Nineveh. And my paraphrase on it is, is something like this. You would spare a plant, Jonah. Should I spare this great city? Think of it this way. Jonah wanted the plant for the purpose that it served him. God wanted Nineveh for the purpose that it served him. God does with his creation anything he wants. The scripture tells us our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And he does whatever he pleases in a consistent way with his holy character so that his justice is seen, his mercy is seen, his grace is seen. God does not create man in vain, and God did not raise up Nineveh in vain. He wished them to be saved, and so he saved them. God points out to Jonah that Jonah did nothing to make the plant grow. God did it all. So we're going to end this study of Jonah with a quote from John Calvin. Here we go. He says, God then shows here to Jonah that he had been carried away by his own merciless zeal. Though his zeal, as it has been said, arose from a good principle, yet Jonah was influenced by a feeling far too vehement. This God proved by sparing so many infants hitherto innocent. And to infants he adds the brute animals. Oxen were certainly superior to shrubs. If Jonah justly grieved for one withering shrub, it was far more deplorable and cruel for so many innocent animals to perish. We hence 
see how opposite all the parts of this similitude to make Jonah to loathe his folly and to be ashamed of it. For he had attempted to frustrate the secret purpose of God and in a manner to overrule it by his own will so that the Ninevites might not be spared who yet labored by true repentance to anticipate the divine judgment. Here, John Calvin kind of addresses in that last little sentence there about true repentance and labor. You see, the good works that God saw are not what saved them. The salvation was already determined for them. The good works were works unto repentance, or you could think of it as a repentance unto good works. You know, as Christians, we're saved and it is free. The grace is free. The love is free. The salvation is free. All of that is free. So why then do we labor? Why then do we work? We work not so that we might earn our salvation, but we work because we are saved. We are saved. God knew from the beginning of our study here in Jonah. He knew what he had raised up the Ninevites for. He knew that he was going to show his mercy. He knew that he was going to save them. And it appears that he is dealing with Jonah through all of this, as well as seeing true repentance from the Ninevites. Isn't it amazing what can happen when someone faithfully declares God's truth? So again, we're going to probably uh, end this. I think we're going to do one more podcast with just some final thoughts, kind of recapping the entire book of Jonah. But this concludes our verse-by-verse study all the way through the book of Jonah. God bless you, and we will see you on the next podcast.